Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. We are in Lesson 8 uh, as we begin tonight, and uh, I'm going to pray and thank God for a good day, and then we'll... Uh, go ahead and begin our study, and I've got uh, just a few corrections from two weeks ago to update you on, a few things, and then off we go. God, thank you for this night. Thank you for the beauty of the world in which we live. Thank you for that beautiful sunshine, the drying of the ground, the trees coming into bud, the flowers starting to peek out. Uh, God, just reminds us that even in every period of our life, there's seasons. There's a time uh, to live, and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, and there's a time to harvest. And uh, you're recreating your earth in it only the way you could, by bringing us spring and thaw and warmer weather. And for all of these things, God, when we complain in the winter, uh, forgive us. Uh, we still have great lives and uh, good things you give us. Tonight, we're going to ask as we open the word that you'll prepare our hearts uh, to, to see what you've uh, shared with us through the scriptures and to know how to put that to, to life. But most of all, God, instead of looking at our Bibles as something to be fearful of, uh, may we understand the power and your voice and your spirit and all that you can do through it. Let this living document live in us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago before the great blizzard, uh, I told you when we were studying through First and Second Corinthians that we would be studying that this fall, and I did not lie, but I've changed my mind. Uh, we went away on a retreat uh, last week on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, a group of us from the staff, and we began to look at some of the, the teaching schedule that I had put together and presented, and we came to a conclusion that we're going to delay the Corinthian series until 2016. Uh, so I'm going to kind of give you guys an insight. Uh, we're going to do a very special series called Why the Church? And it's going to deal with why is there a church? Why should anybody want to go to church? Uh, you probably, maybe you've said this, and I don't mean to belittle you, but I want to attack your argument. I've had conversations with people say, I don't need to go to church, I can worship God all on my own, and that's just anti-biblical. And that's not coming from a person who gains his, just gains his salary from this institution. Uh, you, if there are 31 one-anothers in the Bible, you can't do any of those by yourself. They have to be done in community with other people. And we're going to talk about what that means, and we're going to uh, uh, challenge our people to be unashamed of being a part of God's kingdom called the church. Instead of saying, well, I don't care for church, but ours is good. I want us to promote that any church is good if the word of Christ is preached. And so we're going to do that in the fall. We're going to do Ephesians, which we'll talk about tonight. We're going to do that post-Easter. So we've moved the pieces around, and we'll take Corinthians in the fall. But I had a couple of you be very kind and say, boy, I'm really looking forward to Corinthians. Just keep looking. Hang on. A year and a half from now, we'll get there, and then hopefully it's as good as you imagined it might be. Um, the other thing is, please uh, know that we are 12 weeks in this series, so we are going to go uh, come back from uh, no, next week. We don't have programming because of spring break, and so we'll have next week off, and then we'll have a uh, three- or four-week sprint to the conclusion of this series, which will take us, I think, to the 22nd of April. There's a possibility on that last Wednesday night that the high school and junior high group may be inviting their parents to come in here and worship. So if you're in that place in life where you have uh, young people that are part, we really will encourage you, come in and be in here with them for that. That's an exciting night for them to worship with you and to share the things they're learning. If uh, you're not, we'll probably meet in another part of the building 
Uh, we'll find another room for all of us, and we'll finish this study. If you do need to be with your kids here, don't worry. Uh, remember, my notes are available. You can download the podcast. You can go on our uh, website. You can get the information you need. I, I promise you we'll take care of you. Okay. Let's begin with the early letters, lesson eight. We're going to cover three books in the New Testament. This is the best part of Paul's writing in my estimation. I remember, First and Second Corinthians was written concerning uh, a troubled church. The first letter, he was correcting their mistakes. The second letter, he was telling them to allow mercy and grace to rule once it had been corrected. And then we talked about First and Second Thessalonians, which were letters written to churches that were living under the flaw that Jesus had returned and abandoned them, that he had not protected his promise to them. Now we're going to get, <clears throat> excuse me, into what's called the prison epistles. The word epistles is just an uh, old-fashioned word for letters. Uh, and it, we talked about this previously, but context matters. These letters were not written to an individual. It was not sent to a preacher in a community to be preached on. These letters were circulated amongst house churches. Uh, I would get a copy of it, and I would make a copy of it, and I would hand the copy to you to take to your house, and you would read it in the assembly. And then someone from your assembly would take it and give it to another house church, and they would read this. And Paul is writing this letter to fit all occasions. There's a difference between a specific letter to the churches in Corinth and a letter written to Ephesians because the place of Ephesus is different. Just nod your head if that makes sense. If they were writing a letter to St. Louis, Missouri, and a letter to Las Vegas, Nevada, and then turn around and write a letter to Phoenix, Arizona, you would write those letters contextually different. So we, I don't want you to see that all these towns were the same. They were very, very different. We'll talk about these. But Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians are very unique letters, uh, some of Paul's most encouraging writings, and uh, we'll, we'll walk through what you need to know about these books when you open them up to read them. Uh, when the book of Acts ends, Paul is in Rome. He's been arrested. Do you remember that he was going to be tried? And Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen, and he forced that ruler's hand to take him to Rome on trial. When you're a Roman citizen, you could not be judged by a Jewish court. So when Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't judge me, it'd be like an American in another country saying, I need to go to the embassy, I'm an American citizen, I have the rights of an American citizen, and I need to be taken care of by the embassy. You, you could be charged in that country, but you're going to be protected by your embassy. Paul said, I need to go to Rome. Now, Paul went to Rome knowing this, it would cost him his life. So why did he want to go to Rome? One of these books talks about that, and we'll address that in just a moment. But Paul said, I want a big stage. I need to preach my sermon on a big stage, so here I go. So, Ephesians, the true church. This is one of my favorite letters uh, in all the New Testament. I'm really excited to be able to preach to that this spring, uh, post-Easter. Who wrote it? The Apostle Paul. What was he writing about? Now, I want you to write this specifically because we're going to talk about it for about the next 15 minutes. The true nature of the church. Paul is writing this letter to contradict false teaching about what it means to be spiritual and in relationship to God. So he's writing about the true nature of the church. Okay, let's, take a, let's define terms. Uh, terms matter. Uh, I, I like going to doctors now uh, as compared to when I was a kid because the doctor would say, where does it hurt, or does it hurt? And I would say, yeah, where does it hurt? And I would tell him, and he would touch it, squeeze it, poke it. I was like, I didn't come to you to prove it hurts. I come to you to fix it. Now I go in with my kids, and we take Braden, and the doctor says, you have a sore throat? And Braden will say, yeah. And he'll say, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being I'm dying, and 1 being it scratches. And I'm like, 
where was that doctor when I was growing up? That's awesome. Paul is looking at this, these people and he's saying to them, to the Christians, about the church. Terms matter. So what does church mean? If these letters are written to churches, what do they mean? Well, here's what they don't mean. They don't mean institutions that are highly organized, have systems and structures. What is the church when Paul uses it? For those of you listening on tape, there are at least 100 hands in the air waving desperately to answer the teacher's questions. What does a church mean in the New Testament? Pardon? Body of believers. Good start. The, the word church means called out. Those who've been called out of the world to live in a new world. That doesn't mean heaven. That means the kingdom. So the church are, is the combination of those in community, not the organizations, but the community of believers who are following their king's orders. So you can be a church of four people. That's called the church. You can be a church of 10,000 people. You can go down to the Alamo, to the old Alamo Dome in San Antonio, and you can go to a church where 47,000 people gather on one weekend. They're all the church. You can be a, a hut church on the plains in Africa, or you can go to the greatest, oldest city in all the world where believers gather. It's called the church. What we have to break ourselves from when we read these letters is thinking of Forest Park, College Heights, Fur Road, you know, First Christian in Carthage. We have to break ourselves of those things. And we have to start remembering these letters are written to house churches and groups of believers gathered in cities. And there may have been two believers in one city. That's a church serving that community the way God wants them to. You don't have to have systems. You don't have to have all the organization. Now, I want to pause there as I'm setting you all up. None of those things are bad. To the, letter, to the Corinthians, he says, do everything decent and in order. So systems matter. If you have children, you put systems in place, right? It's time for bath time. If you have more than one child at a time, a bath time had to have a system. Ladies, am I right? You just don't simply say, all of you, go get a bath. Because if you have four little kids under the age of eight, there's going to be naked time for about 45 minutes, and no one's going to get clean. They're going to run around naked, jumping on the beds, bouncing at each other, giggling and having the time of their lives. You have to have a system. We all go in the bedroom. We all take our clothes off. Mom or dad starts the water. We get you in there one at a time. We grease up the pig. We run them to the water. We put them in a towel. We get them in their PJs. We comb their hair. We give them dessert, and we shove them in bed. It's called a system. No dessert? You know where my heart's at. If they don't drown, they get dessert. So you have systems. Okay? And why do you have systems? Because it makes life easy to understand and how to implement the principles. Why am I talking to you like this? I don't want you to make too much of the structure of the church, but don't become this new fad that dismisses it either. Allow me. You come onto our campus on a Sunday morning, and because a lot of people choose to worship together in this location, aren't we glad that there are guys and women that stand out there when it's 22 degrees outside who make sure they find you a parking spot? You moms that come in with kids and your husband's not with you to help you, and they tell you, pull up to the door and we'll help you get everything out and we'll park your car. Aren't we grateful that people do that? But isn't that organized and structured and yeah, praise God. Aren't you glad when you come in here someone has figured out to have the heat on or to have it off, at least most of the time. That the chairs have been picked up and all the coffee cups that get left and all the paper scraps of the kids who get bored when I talk. 
that that's all been picked up and vacuumed and put away. Yeah, we're grateful for those things. So don't go so far as to say church has to have absolute structures to be worth anything, but also don't dismiss when those systems work to our advantage and they're helpful. And, you know, I'm grateful that everyone serving in our children's area tonight has been screened by the state of Missouri to make sure that there's no secrets that we need to know about with our kids. I think structures are okay. Systems work. So that's the church. Okay, commercial over. Let's talk about Christ Church. Not here, but the one he's talking about. Where did he write it? He wrote it from prison. That's going to be a reoccurring theme tonight. You can fill that in all the way down the line. It was written about 62 AD. And it was written to contrast Christianity with temple worship. Or if you want to put in parentheses next to that, false spirituality. To contrast Christianity with temple worship, false spirituality. Ephesus was a happening town. Uh, I've heard different preachers or teachers talk about this. You might equate uh, Ephesus to not being a Las Vegas, but it very well could have been a San Francisco. A lot of culture, a lot of art, a lot of sex trade in it. So when I think of the towns in the United States that really prosper off of that environment, San Francisco comes to my mind. And I'm not speaking about same-sex attraction. I'm talking about San Francisco has always been innovator in sin in our country. It's been kind of a gateway, if you will, to our country to bring in a lot of things that have come from other places that just aren't always great. It's a beautiful city. I love San Francisco. I love to visit there. The food there is fantastic. Once again, food reference. But culturally, it's a unique place. Uh, In Ephesus, they had this temple to Artemis, the sex god. And part of the worship of Artemis was to, people would go in there and copulate in the temple as an act of worship. Paul's writing about this, this sense of giving yourself to something spiritually is not the equivalent to being spiritual. Because Satan has a spirituality to him. Because he's not a physical creature. There's a spiritual element to him. And people were worshiping his way to become more spiritual. And you see it today. There's iterations of it all over. There's the mystics. There's the new age. There's all of these things going on where people are looking for more spirituality and they're missing Jesus. Paul would write this letter to try to to separate this. The basic message of Ephesians is, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) is that Christ church is a living organism, not an institution. It's a family. That's so important. It it is the number one metaphor used in the New Testament, specifically by Paul, to talk about the church as an organism. It's a family. It grows. As my boys grow, our family changes. As their interests become unique, our family changes. As Heather and I get older and have been married a number of years, uh, we have changed. I'm not the same guy. She's grateful. I'm not the same guy she married. I'm, I'm a different guy. I've evolved. I've, I've gotten better in some areas and worse in others. But our, this whole organism is growing and changing and aging and shedding off bad habits and putting on new things. It's, it's amazing. That's the church. If you find the perfect church, uh, as we used to say, if you find the perfect church, you wouldn't be invited. If you find a church where you become a part of the body, you become a part of the kingdom, and you grow. I've given you a little bit of an outline there for Ephesians. Two main sections. It divides itself rather easily. First three chapters are theology. Second three chapters are praxis. Okay? This is what is true, and this is how you live that truth out. 
So what's special about Ephesians? Number one, the first component of it uh, is what God has done for believers in Christ. What has God done for believers in Christ? Now, what's interesting, if you have, you know, like a Bible laying next to you and you want to open it to Ephesians, what's fascinating to me is verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. Now, remember, pointed this out several, several, it seems like years ago, but when we first began this study this spring, that in every one of letter, Paul's letters, he identifies three things in the church. Do you remember what they were? Pardon? Faith, hope, and love. If they're there, they get out of boys. If they're not there, that's why I wrote the letter. So in the letter of Ephesians, it's a very positive letter. He's praising God for their faith, for their hope, and for their love. But he's challenging what their faith is in. Not in being spiritual, but in following Christ. So, verses 3 through 14. At the beginning of every letter, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, or uh, Paul, called by Christ, he gives his identification. Now, you remember this. This is Christianity 101. These were written on scrolls, right? You wouldn't put who wrote the letter at the end of the scroll and make someone unroll the whole thing to find out who it came from. So the opening of every scroll is the author's name and the audience intention. So when you read it, you'd say, oh, that's not for me. That's for Tron. Here, Tron, you take it. But when you read it, it would say, the Apostle Paul called by God as an evangelist, so on and so forth. So the first two verses are the introduction of what the letter's about. And then verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. In the Greek, it is one incredibly powerful theological sentence. In our Bibles, I think I counted today differing translations, it's anywhere from five to seven uh, sentences in my English translations, but it's just one in the Greek. Paul is, I sometimes get happy and I talk faster than my tongue can work, and I have to look at myself internally and go, slow down, you got time. Paul just takes off and launches in one of the most beautiful, powerful sentences of what God has done for us. Because he wants the Ephesians to understand, you don't need to, to go into a temple of Artemis and worship her. She's done nothing for you. Our God served us first. And then he uses, and it's been broken down here in this little chart, what God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done. So you can just read that chart and see what Paul does in one amazing sentence. The second piece, Paul's prayers for the Ephesians. Paul has two prayers in this section. You can see in verses 15 through 21 of chapter 1 and in 14 through 20 of chapter 3, Paul prays two prayers in this, in this book, and they're both beautiful prayers. Uh, this is called, uh, some theologians call this Paul's spirit of doxology. Doxology being a term that just means praise and adoration. Paul breaks out into some happy language in the middle of his letters. He's writing these things, and he just stops. He goes, this is phenomenal. And he just prays a prayer while he's writing. Father God, thank you for this. Thank you for this. And it's all about what God has done. Two powerful prayers in that. Number three, the true relationship between faith and works. This still confuses people today, and, it, and rightfully so. I, do, I don't want to dismiss it like it's inconsequential, because it's not. Uh, but you, people say, am I saved by faith or am I saved by works? Uh, let me use a, a trigger conversation that happens often uh, in, in Christianity today. The concept of baptism. Is it, faith, is it by faith or works? Do I have to be baptized 
and you, you kind of know my trigger with that on now. No, you don't have to be baptized. You get to be baptized. If you have faith, why would you not obey in baptism? But people say, no, I don't have to be baptized because I have faith in Jesus. That's what saves me. And they'll say, you know, it says in Romans 10 that if you call on the name of the Lord and you believe that you're saved. But it also says in Romans 6, which if I can count is four chapters previous to Romans 10, it says in Romans 6, 3 through 11, that baptism is that moment in which the blood of Christ is, is laid upon you. So which is it? If, if I have to do anything, does that negate faith? It's a fair question, isn't it? Theologians have been battling it all out. Martin Luther struggled with this. He wrote, faith only, all over. That's where that expression came about for churches. They preach faith only. Martin Luther struggled with this all the time. He said, there's nothing I can do to warrant God's grace, and he's absolutely right. So how can faith and works coincide? Okay? Ladies, if your husband loves you, and you know he loves you, is that always satisfying, just to know he loves you? Or would you like acts of kindness, thoughtfulness, affection, gifts, roses that we're going, I say dessert, I get made fun of, roses get yelled from the front row. I, I see how this works. Okay, yeah, chocolates, keep going, I'm with you, sister. All right, so see, food, third food reference, I love this place. So what's my point? There is faith that has to be demonstrated. Uh, I, like to, I like to say, because it makes sense in my head, faith is always found on the other side of obedience. I, I know my, my parents are right, and I know I should respect my parents, but respecting my parents means I do something. Not just this tacit, make sense? So you can take anything, tithing. There's another happy thought. Do you have to tithe? Isn't that a work? Absolutely it's a work. Based on what? It takes a lot of faith to take 10% of your salary and give it to another group of people that you, when you could use it. It took a lot of faith to take your best bull that could have bred with the other cows and produced a great herd, the best prime bull you had. And God said, no, how about you kill that bull to prove to me that you trust that I won't leave you hanging? Does that take faith? How is faith demonstrated? Cut the bull's throat. So they're not separate, but there's been a debate forever. And not that we're smarter, but when you take the Bible in its entirety and you don't pull one or two verses out, you understand that the relationship between faith and works is uh, if our works don't come from our faith, they mean nothing. And if our faith is real, we'll work. So real faith works. It does things. Number four, the Christian's new self. Chapter four, verses 20 through five, verse seven. Paul uses an expression in uh, chapter two, verse 10. Um, I point this out a lot because it's significant, I think. He says that we are God's workmanship. Okay? God created us. And the word for workmanship is the word poema, which means poem. We are God's artistry, is how that can be translated. What that means is God has created us not just to save us, God's created us to make us useful. God's given us opportunity to do things. Uh, Braden asked a great question. He was six or seven years old. I have it written down in my office. It's Someone told me, we didn't do it with Alex, but somebody told me with Braden, they said, do you regret not writing down some of the great things your kids said when they were little? And I was like, yeah, because I always thought I'd remember them. And after I used them in a sermon, I forgot them. So I have to go back and listen to all my sermons. I'm not doing that. So with Braden, I started writing some of these things down. And he looked at me one day uh, in our car, and he said, why'd you have me? <laughs> Just that matter of fact. 
And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, why'd you have me? Why did you have another son? And I said, well, how far do I go? I looked at him, I said, because we like kids and we wanted children in our world. And it's more fun with you guys than without you. And I just started giving him those real, just practical things that made sense to me. You know, and then he goes, oh. And I said, but let me tell you, you're really expensive. <laughs> I said, you've never had a job. You've never helped pay for the groceries. He's the guy at a restaurant without even looking at us will order an appetizer. I never grew up as a kid ordering an appetizer. That's what rich people did. Braden's like, the guy said, would you like some queso and chips? He's like, yeah. I'm like, you're going to go out and get a job at Dairy Queen, son. But when I weighed the balance, but I said, at the end of the day, because I told him I'd heard that week, that it, the cost right now, they tell you that if you have a child today, it's going to cost you $380,000 to raise them up through high school. So I looked at him, I said, you're really expensive, and, and you, from the littlest time, you couldn't do anything, we had to buy diapers, you couldn't even go to the bathroom yourself, and he's giggling in the car, we were having a good conversation. But where did that question come from, why'd you have me? So let's pose the question, sit on a couch one day and ask God, why'd you have me? And it wasn't to rule over us, was it? It was the same reason we have children, because I love you, I wanted to share the good things of life, I wanted to introduce you to the things that make me happy, I I want to take you to ball games. I want to see you run. I want to see you do all this stuff. And so let's go back to the fourth point, the Christian's new self. We know why God brought us into the world. Now, why did he recreate us in the second birth? Not to continue on the path we were on. Not to live separate, but to bring us into his world and to engage us, to, to some of you, to hear you sing. Uh, I had a friend of mine. He'd never, ever listened to me. He's a lot younger than me, but... His, uh, he's coaching, or last year he coached his son in Little League for the first time. And he said, you were right. And I love when people tell me that. And I said, on what part? He goes, you told me that it is so much harder to watch your kids play ball than it is to play ball yourself. I said, oh, absolutely. Because as a kid, I never thought, if I struck out, I just got mad at myself, I threw the bat, my dad yelled at me, and we moved on. With Braden, when he fails, there's a part of me that wants to protect him and go, okay, you're still a good kid, you haven't done anything wrong, you struck out, Every, you, you with me on this? You want to protect their hearts. So God doesn't want us to go back to the old pattern. What does he want us to do? He wants us to walk in the new self. So for some of you, he wants you to sing and to run and to laugh and to, to write and to encourage and to bake. And I always say that, and I'm not being funny with food right now. Uh, there are some people who, there's a lady named Eveline Gilpin in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. She's gone to be with the Lord, but oh my goodness. Eveline never came to visit anybody. She didn't bring molasses cookies. I'd make up reasons to ask her to come see me because she always came in my office with fresh baked goods. She was a stay-at-home grandma and she loved to bake and she couldn't, she said, I don't teach well. What she'd always do is every Sunday morning, she would um, sit in the nursery and she'd rock the babies for two hours while the parents came in and took a breather. And every preacher who had ever been at that church in Eveline's lifetime, she was the person we gave our babies to during service so mom could come in and have one hour just to not have to worry about any of that. And every time we brought Braden or Alex's uh, diaper bag back, guess what was in the diaper bag? Molasses cookies. Because she knew what I liked. So she'd always send those home. When the boys got older, they became their cookies. But she was always a blessing. And she said to me one time, this is the reason I tell you her story. She said to me, I don't know what I bring to church except I love to be here. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I've never seen Eveline one day in my life I didn't smile. It's like that lady thinks of people all week long. She had spiritual gift of baking, praise God. 
It's the new life. It's using those things and turning them into something that other people can use. Uh, Paul's brilliant in this chapter about that. Uh, God's creation is a new self, and it comes from his righteousness and his holiness. Uh, there's a purpose for that. Have you ever noticed how God doesn't waste a hurt? You may have gone through a hellacious moment in your life. Did you ever notice how God will bring someone across to your path? I have permission to share this. When we were newly married, we had three miscarriages before we had Alex. And it was hard. I didn't understand from a woman's perspective how exactly hard that was. I knew she was upset and I was disappointed and I tried to be there, but I just couldn't, I couldn't pat her back or rub her hand or kiss her on the forehead in any way that made any difference to her. She's just struggling. And these two ladies in our church, uh, one of them named Beulah, wonderful woman, godly woman, not always pleasant to be with because she, she was more right than I was, but she was a godly woman. She just invited Heather to go to lunch one day. And Heather was like, why does she want to take me to lunch? She was all nervous. And, and at the end of the lunch, Heather came back with a big smile on her face. They had heard what happened to us, and both the ladies that took her to lunch had gone through that several times. And basically, they just told her, here's how you're going to feel. That, that part of you, the rest of your life, you'll wonder what your child looked like. And they just walked her through every emotion. And she was so secure. Their tragedies became their ministry. And I wish none of us went through that. But they used the worst part of their lives, to encourage people. Because the message was, we're still here. God has blessed us. We're going to see our children one day in the presence of the king. You're going to be okay. And that's all she needed to know. She needed a woman to say, you're not a failure. You're not broken. You're all right. I, I love the fact that God redeems what Satan tries to torture us with. But that doesn't happen if we're not the church. Right? If we're not using our positive gifts and even our negative experiences to lift up Christ, we have a lot of people who feel isolated, lonely, and hurting. So it's the new life, and there's a purpose for it. And then point number five of the whole book is he gets into what does it really mean to be head of the house? And Ephesians 5 carries us all the way through the end. It's talking about the home. But what I really want to point out is um, the whole misnomer that Paul was the sexist, the misogynist, that he didn't think women had value. Uh, I used an illustration two weeks ago, and I don't want to revisit it for the provocative nature of it, but I received a few emails about it, which I appreciated. Um, I, I talked to you about when we discovered in my home church that there was a very racist rule about who could visit and where they had to sit in our church. And when Al I told Alex that story uh, when he was in junior high, and he was just absolutely appalled that that would take place, that someone could think that way. So um, I, we were talking about it as a staff in another conversation. Uh, I, I couldn't convince this boy at 10 or 12 years old what it was like in 1960 if the Civil Rights Movement in 1968 finally gained, or 64 to 68, actually gained traction. That meant from 1950 to 1964, things were accepted that just weren't okay. So he didn't understand. So I took him back and showed him Disney's movie Song, Song of the South, Uncle Remus, Tar Baby, and I remember the disbelief of my 12-year-old looking at that film going, are you kidding me? And I said, yeah, it doesn't make it okay. Here's my point. It doesn't make it okay. But in that day and time, it wasn't questioned, right? When Paul writes about a man's role in the home, he's not writing to a 2014 educated American woman. And what he's saying is still correct. What he's saying is, if a man acts like Jesus acts toward his church... His wife will find fulfillment in a man who cares for her both spiritually and physically. 
Now I look around the room and there's some people who've done that and it didn't work out. Paul's challenging us to live this out. Even, even in the midst of failures going on all around us. What does it mean to be the head of the house? It means to be in submission to Christ. So you would go to the temple of Artemis and you would perform all of these weird cultish things to get her approval. And Paul writes a letter to this church and he says, you already have his approval. Now live it out. Is we like to say about the book of Ephesians, Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a commentary on it and he called it Practicing Your Resurrection. So remember that. That's what Ephesians is about. How do we live out the new life, the resurrected life? How do we take our baking and our trials and our errors and all of them and use them for the kingdom instead of sacrificing to an idol that never lived? Next book, Philippians. Call it A Testimony to Joy. It was written by Paul. What's it about joy? Comma, not happiness. Where was it written? Do you remember? Prison. Again, it was written about 62 AD. This is amazing. Did some research on this. Um, why? He wrote it to relieve the stress of the churches about his imprisonment. <laughs> He's telling them, hey, I'm good. I'm in prison and I'm going to die, but I'm good. Her name was Emma Bradley. She was 89 years old. And uh, I was preaching and I heard the church phone ring back in the day. You could hear it ring through the whole church. Saw two deacons scrambling into the kitchen to grab it before it rang a fourth time. And I heard him talking, and then I heard him go over and tap this guy named John in our church, and they went out in the hallway, and John didn't come back. The two deacons came back, and I figured out what was happening. His mom, Emma, had been rushed to the hospital. She had fallen down, hitting her head on the, on the kitchen counter. She shouldn't have been up, but she got up to fix her own breakfast and, and everything. And we went in the hospital, and, and uh, when they were doing the... Uh, scan of her head to find out if she'd broken her skull or done anything, they found a massive tumor uh, just behind her ear. She had been covering it up with her hair because she didn't want anybody to know it was there. Her, she said her vanity got in the way of her common sense. And the doctors saw the tumor and they told the family she has two weeks. Uh, it, the reason she was falling is it was, had gone somewhere into her spinal column and it was pinching around that and it was restricting everything. She was a mess. And I went right from the hospital, or right from preaching that morning, and went over to the hospital, and the family was there, and it was devastation. They're in the family room, at, or the waiting room, and everyone's sobbing hard, and everyone's horrified. She's a wonderful woman, just always just full of joy. And who ministered to that room? Can you guess? Emma Bradley. She came out of the room against doctor's orders in her wheelchair, and she walked in there, and she, I loved it. She told her oldest son, you straighten up and stop that right now. And she gave us the best sermon that morning. She told all of us, Preacher, what'd you preach about? And I told her, and she said, Well, you need to listen to him. I'm going to go see Jesus, and I'm going to be fine. Now you guys need to stop this right now. And she held all of us up until two weeks later she was gone. And I look at that. When I think of Philippians, I think of Emma Bradley. Just someone God put in my life one day said, She wasn't scared of death because she knew the promise. So let's begin. Joy in the midst of trials. Paul's in prison. 
He's asked for the opportunity to appeal to Caesar, and to Caesar he will go. And like Jesus before Pilate, Caesar will find nothing wrong with him and still put him to death. And this, is, this has one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. You can see the outline there. He's talking to the church. He's warning them against false teachings that will steal their joy. Now, in this book, Paul does not promise it's going to go well. Paul never says, I'm going to get out of prison. When I read the New Testament, he has no vision of grandeur that he's going to walk out a free man ever again. But he knows when he gets out of there, he's going to be free. He just knows it's going to be on the other side of death. So he holds on. So what's special in Philippians? The source of Paul's joy. There's many sources here. And I, I don't remember. I, I wish when I was putting this together, I would have cited this exact chart because I've used it several times in my own devotionals and I don't remember where I got it. I just want to tell you it's not from me. Paul finds joy in partnering with others to share the gospel, in stimulating others to share the gospel, in the prayers of others for him, in the unity and love of the Philippians. You read the letter of Philippians and Paul is saying, I got it good. Things are going well. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to get out of here. I am going to testify to Jesus Christ before the highest court in the land and all the world and I'm not going to come out of this alive. But I'm telling you, I have zero regrets. It's a powerful book. Oh, by the way, what's the difference between happiness and joy? Yeah, happiness is circumstantial. Joy is then what? It's disconnected from your circumstance. Happy is a double cheeseburger, a good plate of sweet potato fries, and a big dessert. I can be happy with that. Joy is... When you know who you are, you know you're loved and cared for and you're starving. It's not based on whether everything's going well. Which do you think preaching deals with most in America? Happiness and not joy. Uh, I've received three emails in the last 24 hours from folks saying, are you reading the paper? Do you think persecution's coming to America? I'm only guessing. I guarantee it is. If the largest foundation of Christianity, purported Christianity, is in the United States and the millions, if not billions of dollars going into other parts of the world to promote the gospel of Christ coming from the United States, don't you think there's a target on Christians? So if I'm preaching happiness to you, that God wants you wealthy and successful and to have everything you need, and if you're sick, just pray and it'll all go away, do you find that in the Bible? I don't. I don't find that at all. I think life's going to get worse. I don't want it that way. I'm not that brave. But when I read the Bible, anytime you stand up for Christ, someone's going to try to knock you down. And we're living in a world today that's it's really awkward. So what are we going to do about that? We need joy, not happiness. Because happiness can be taken away and joy cannot be stolen from you. That's the beauty of the Philippian letter. Number two, Paul's inner conflict over dying. I joke about it a lot because my sense of humor is really weird. I'm not looking forward to dying, but if it's going to happen, I want it to be really quick. I, you know, I look at it and go, I, I remember my grandfather died at 96. He's the one I speak of often. And uh, his last four or five years, is hard to be around him because he didn't want to be here. And it really made me mad because I wanted him to stay here. He didn't want to be here. And I took that personally. Like, Why don't you want to stay with your family? And I remember him looking at me and my mom one time, his daughter, his favorite grandson, obviously. 
And he looked at us and he said, everybody's gone. And my mom said, Dad, I'm right here. And he goes, I know, everybody's gone. His brothers, the people who know his stories, the ones he played ball with, everyone he'd grown up with, he was one of the last remaining. He lived 96 years. He didn't enjoy the last five, six years. He wanted to go. He knew where he was going. And I look at that and I think, he really taught me a lesson even though I hate it in the moment. This isn't all there is. It can't be. So what do we do? We live in joy. So Paul says, I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary that I remain here with you. I talk a lot about that, but time's not going to let us. I think you guys catch on. When we get back to Philippians, we'll walk through it again. Number three, working out salvation is different than working for salvation. Working out our salvation is different than working for salvation. So what's the difference? Working for salvation is trying to impress God. It's like a show-off child. I don't know if you've ever been one. I've been told by my parents I had a tendency that way. But when kids show off, isn't it easy to kind of turn your head from them and go, just ignore them, they'll quit. Throw yourself on the ground. One of the best things I've seen in the last three months happened at the Carthage Walmart. Uh, my wife was gone for two weeks, and Braden and I were batching it, so we went to buy food that men cook, a lot of hamburgers to put on the grill, things I can handle. And we were in there, and this child said he wanted this toy. And his mom said, I told you, you're not getting anything today because of what happened in school. There was a backstory I didn't know about, but I understood her point. And this, he, he was about Braden's age, so he's anywhere from 8 to 10. He threw himself on the ground. He kicked another lady's shopping cart when she came by. Now at that point, being Dale Christian's son, I almost volunteered to step in and make him quit. And this woman, she saw me out of the corner of my eye. I couldn't hide my emotion. She watched me, and Braden was like, oh, Dad, let's go, let's go, let's go. I don't know if he thought I was going to spank the kid or what, but he's like, come on, Dad, let's go, let's go. And he grabbed my hand, and I looked at her and I go, are you all right? And she goes, uh, when I hit the door, watch. And she walked right, and the doors opened, and she headed out of the Walmart, and that little boy stood right up, behaved himself, and ran out of store crawling, Mama. She wouldn't have it. She wasn't going to put up that. I think a lot of Christians act like that with God. I'm going to do really well. I'm going to be good. I'm going to change everything. I'm going to get your attention, and then you're going to bless me. That's working for your salvation. Working out your salvation is to say, this is the deal of a lifetime. I one time had to borrow my grandfather's car. My parents were out of town. My car broke down. I called my grandpa. I hated to borrow anything from him because he was particular about everything. And I remember, this is always stuck in my mind about this passage. I remember returning the car. I filled it up completely with gas. I made sure the oil was right. I washed the, I never treated my own car as well as I treated his car. Why? Because when I gave it back to him, I never wanted my grandfather to look at me and say, you disrespected what I, what I loaned you. Because he put that little bit of fear in me. Working out your salvation is when you give God back the life he gave you with respect. So why don't you let yourself fall apart? Why don't you let yourself enter into addiction? Why do you hold yourself from selfish behavior? It's not because I want God to give me his attention so I get what I want. No, I actually do this because he's blessed me with something that's not mine. The new life belongs to him. I, be I become him. I put on Christ. I put off the old dying man. I put on the new life. Does that make sense? So I'm using a lot of anecdotes tonight because when you start to mix these theories, it's really easy to say, well, I'm saved. Now I'm going to live like it. What does that look like? 
Living life doesn't mean I dodged the bullet, now I get to go back to my old behaviors. Working out your salvation is what he says in Philippians, is no, live like it matters. Live like his investment in you has value to you. Number four, a vivid description of the confident Christian. Got a bunch of Braden stories tonight. Hopefully they're helpful. Uh, was down the basement in the office. Heather had run to the store. Braden had gone up to take a nap. We'd been here about a year, so he's about five years old. And our, our, we have a three uh, upper level, and then we have the main floor, and then we have a basement. And Heather's office is down the basement. And I'm down in the office balancing the checkbook. And I, hear, I can hear Braden jump out of bed, and I can hear his feet paddling across the floor. And he comes down the steps, and I hear, Mom! Mom! And I yelled upstairs, B! It's, I'm down here! I thought he heard me. And all of a sudden... I heard this horrible scream and this, ah, and I heard the front door open and my son lost his mind. He came downstairs from his nap, thought we abandoned him and ran out the front door toward the street. I'm like, okay, that's the most illogical response. I could see locking the doors and finding a gun, but why would you run out in the street if you're horrified to be alone? And I looked out and, and <laughs> I'm glad he's not hearing this. He was running in a circle in the front yard screaming. That's the worst decision ever made. So I run outside, and I'm like, Braden, I'm right here. I, I thought you left me. So I got him calmed down, and then I, I was going to make fun of him later, but I got him calmed down, and I sat him on the couch, and we had about a 15-minute conversation. I promise you, we would never leave you. I would never, ever leave you here by yourself. Now he begs me to. But at five, you understand the horror and panic of thinking they finally did it. <laughs> he talked her into it. They left me, you know? So we had to have this conversation over and over. So what is the secret of a content Christian or of a confident Christian? It's found right there in your notes. It's knowing Christ. If, if I could encourage people from my study the last month, um, I would encourage people to ask yourself a question most any time. Would Jesus do that to me? On most every circumstance. When the world says Jesus is angry at you, he hates you, would Jesus do that to me? The Jesus of Scripture, the one who's revealed himself by the cross, is that really the way he treats us? It was so hard for me, all joking aside, to watch my son horrified with the notion that we would just bolt and leave him all by himself. And so we had to have a conversation. I remind him all the time, hey, Braden, I joke with you a lot, but buddy, I promise you, you're never going to wonder where your folks are. We're going to tell you all the time. And uh, so, again... Number five, freedom from anxiety is ours to claim. If you know who Christ is, if you know the birds get fed and the flowers are made beautiful, Jesus said, do you have to worry about whether or not God cares? But it's easy to have anxiety. Why? Because we, when you worship a false god, when that false god fails you, you realize the, the failure and fallacy of your life. If, you know, if, if I thought people listening to me on a Sunday morning is what made me who I was, when you all get bored and tired of me, if you're not already there, and you stop attending, what have I built my whole existence on? Your appreciation? It's a great church. Very encouraging. But at the end of the day, if I do this for you, then who's my God? The audience. So it's a, it's a struggle for all of us every day. Maybe you want your boss's approval or a bigger raise to prove to your value. We can't live that way. If you know who Christ is, 
Paul says, I'd love to be with him, but I'll also stay and do the work he's asked me to do. Number six, the secret of contentment in all circumstances. I've been a little out of pocket all day today with this because I want to kind of illustrate these books to show you that there's real practical uh, teaching in this. This is everyday stuff. That's why Paul wrote it. But when I talk to you about all circumstances, I'd like to redeem Philippians 4.13. It has fallen into the category of locker room theology. No, I will never be able to dunk a ball because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Uh-uh. You didn't win the Super Bowl because you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. So if you actually want to take Philippians 4.13 in context, are you ready? Does anybody know what the context is? Financial giving. Paul says there's been times I've had a lot and there's times I've had a little, but in all circumstances I've learned to be content. He's talking about their, their giving to promote the kingdom throughout the world. And he said, when I have a little, I give what I can. When I have a lot, I give what I can. Because I've learned that I'm content in who I am in Christ, regardless of what I possess or don't possess. So I can do all things. I can be generous, and I can be content through Christ who gives me strength. It has nothing to do with if you wish it, it'll happen. So I know some of you are going, I don't know why he's all happy about this. Because I really tire of verses being taken out of context. Jeremiah 29, 11. I have a plan for you, a plan to make you prosper. Really? You have to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years to claim that verse as your own. Because that verse is not about God's got everyone's life. Because if that's true, then Job and Jesus are owed an apology. That passage was to the nation of Israel to tell them that I'm going to punish you for your, your misbehavior and then I'm going to redeem you because I'm a covenant God. And when I redeem you, we will keep the covenant we started together. It's the equivalent of a 70-year timeout. Go to your room and think about what you did. And when I let you come back down, we need to live differently. So these verses have to be held to. He's talking here about all circumstances, how to give and how to sacrifice. And then if you look at the very bottom, um, this is, to me, if not, with the exception of Romans and the teachings of Jesus directly, I believe Philippians chapter 2 may be the best, most beautifully poetic and powerful chapter in the New Testament. Romans 8 would be right up there. I'm not saying it's the best, it's in the top four, in my opinion. You know this passage, it talks about Jesus. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of all of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What kept Paul's head above water in prison? What got him through those cold nights when he writes in the letter and he said, send so-and-so to bring me my blanket? Send someone some to bring me my books. Someone bring me some parchment so I can write some notes. What got him through that? He said, because if Jesus went through all of that to redeem us, then God will deliver me from this in the same way he delivered Christ. Okay, last one, Colossians. Colossians is a parallel book to Ephesians. I just read something last week about the two that compared it. I, I liked it. It said Colossians is a shorter version of Ephesians. Ephesians was Paul's theolo uh, theological treat treatment, 
and Colossians was the practical example of it. There are so many similar passages in the two books. That's why if I'm going to preach one of the two of them, I'm going to choose to preach Ephesians because it's deeper and has more detail. But Colossians is a good way to understand the same concepts. Who wrote it? Paul? Uh, what did he write? About daily living. Where was he? Prison. When did he write it? About 63 B.C.? Her, yeah, A.D., sorry. B.C., that would have been amazing. <laughs> he wrote it 50 years before he was born. Why? To clear up their confusion about false teaching. This book was written to people who felt like things of the flesh were evil. Just the opposite of Ephesus. In Ephesus, things of the flesh were worship. Here they're saying, if it's of the flesh, it's evil, it's tainted. Appetites are tainted, sexual desires are, are tainted, needs are tainted, and so we become slaves to our body. So they went through this very uh, Greek philosophy that the body was worthless and all you need to do is fine-tune it and then deny it. And your, your worship was to deny the things of the flesh. Paul writes this letter by proving that Jesus came in the flesh so the flesh was not evil. So he dismantles their false philosophy by pointing this out. So I give you a lot of information. I, I gave you some writing from the Expositor's Bible Commentary uh, that explains what some of the issues were there. And you can read that at your leisure. What's special in the book of Colossians? Number one, Paul, uh, Paul's prayer points the way to spiritual growth. This chart's been very helpful for me. Once again, I can't cite where I got it from, but I want to be clear it's not mine. I love this. He prays these things. He prays that they would be filled up with the knowledge of God's will. So how do we do that? We study scripture where his will is revealed. Uh, you, you might even write down there, if you, you care to, the will of God is found in the word of God. When Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he was using the letters of the alphabet to say, I'm the beginning of all God's going to say. I'm the end of all God's going to say. There's no new information. There's, no, there's nothing we're going to discover in the future that's going to negate the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. That's what we need to know. Alpha and Omega. Exercise spiritual wisdom and insight. How do you do that? You, you seek to live this out. You function. You put your faith to work. Live a life worthy of the Lord. Act on what you learn. Desire to please him. Bear fruit in every good work. Bear fruit and God will produce good fruit and good works. Uh, a gentleman named Bill Walker in, in Michigan came to me. He, he knows that I love berries. And uh, when I'd come to visit my grandmother here, she had gooseberry plants. And I'm the only person in our entire family who loves gooseberries. I love tart. And she always made gooseberry pie when I came. And I loved it because nobody else wanted any. So the entire week with Grandma, I ate the entire pie. And she would make it. It'd make me sick sometimes, but it was so worth it. And so I went back, and I told the story of my grandmother's gooseberry pie. And this guy named Bill Walker came to me, and he brought me a raspberry plant. And of course, he, he thought, you know, a typical preacher can't do anything. So he's like, I'm going to come over and we're going to plant this in your backyard. And, and so he was always pulling on me and picking at me. And he's like, where do you want to plant that? And I point a spot and he goes, well, it'll live for a week. I say, okay, then tell me where I'm supposed to plant it. So he walks over and he finds this area and, and he starts digging. And he puts it down there. And I never forget him turning around. And, and Bill was about five foot five and he had a little man's disease. And he was always trying to prove he was a big guy. And he walks over and he puts his finger in my chest and he goes, be careful this thing because if it gets away from you, you'll hate raspberries. 
And I said, what? And he just walked away, like little Patton. He just walked away having conquered. So I called my dad, and I'm like, what did he mean? And he goes, oh, raspberry bushes, if they grow, they'll go crazy. And they will just start sprouting and sprouting, and you'll have more raspberries than you can get rid of. And I'm thinking, there's no way I can have too many raspberries in my world. Two years later, I was begging people to come take starts off that thing. And they would just keep coming, and we would pick them and freeze them. And Heather's like, you're going to have to buy me an entire freezer for berries if you don't start giving these away. So we went back, and I called Bill about three years later, and I said, what do I do? And he laughed, and he came over with a chainsaw, and he cut down everything but about three plants. And he goes, you just got to gotta keep on top of this. Okay, why do I tell you that story? Look at this. Bear fruit and good work. You'll bear fruit, and what will God do? He is going to multiply it and use it to be shared. There's no gift God's given us we're meant to keep. Colossians is what inspires me to think that. Number two, the real Jesus is both fully God and truly man. I love the descriptions here and the characteristics of Jesus. Colossians, verses 15 to 23, has one of those sentences like we find in Ephesians. And I hope you'll take your notes and just spend some time. If you're looking for a place to start reading, I'd encourage you to take one of these three books and just begin to celebrate. Just record the good things taking place in them. Number three, what Jesus did in our world makes all the difference. Colossians 1.22. By his physical body, he reconciled us to God. He was the bull. He was the blue ribbon, perfect animal. You get one in a lifetime. And he gave himself physically so that spiritually we could be, by the blood, be saved. And 122 is just a powerful, powerful verse. And then the last point is, will the real Christians please stand up? Colossians 2, 20-23, and 3, <coughs> excuse me, 12-17. If you allow me to, I've drawn a comparison between what Paul would say are the pretenders and the players. He's talking to them about the things that they put into their Christianity that God never designed. Fake Christians, and that's a strong term, I know. The minute I wrote it, I thought, uh-oh. Fake Christians make up rules. They try, to, they try to control everybody by what you can or can't do. Real Christians are kind and compassionate. Real Christians show grace, even when someone makes a mistake. My grandmother, who is married to this grandpa I talk about all the time, she was as sweet as he was grumpy. He was an ornery little Irishman, and she was the sweetest, kindest lady ever. She's the only person in the world I know who could silence him with a word. And, she would, and it was this word, Grandpa. And he knew he'd crossed the line in her book. And she's one of the sweetest people. And I remember uh, our preacher came over, and I was over there hiding out on a Sunday afternoon because I didn't want to go to Sunday night church, which my folks would. So I hung out with Grandma and Grandpa, and I was over at their house, and the preacher stopped by that afternoon, and he came in, and he told a couple of jokes. And he didn't understand my grandmother very well. My grandmother didn't like when preachers talked about people who weren't in the room. In other words, my grandma didn't go to church to hear what was wrong with the Catholics or the Buddhists or the Muslims. She goes, I want them to talk to me. That's about as bold a statement as she ever said. And he came in, and he was talking about a church down the street and what it was teaching, and he just didn't understand my grandma. And I knew how she felt, so I was across the room waiting for her to launch. And she was as sweet as she could be. And then she said something that was so gentle and compassionate, but so accurate. She said, well, Neil, I really disagree with you, but I understand. And he stopped talking. When you can silence a preacher, that is a laser-like blow. 
and he realized he'd crossed the line and got carried away and and he thanked him for the coffee and paddled on down the road and I looked across the room and I'm thinking wow that's power right there she didn't make fun of him or anything she just said no we just you and I just disagree like wow gentle she had her standards right but she also said I won't give up my standards but I'm not going to mistreat you because of it we can disagree it's easy to make people try to control people it's also loving them in freedom and but being corrective Fake Christians emphasize don'ts. Real Christians emphasize forgiveness and love. Fake Christians look pious. Real Christians enjoy worship. What I mean by that is uh, people, when they're living a legalistic lifestyle, are more concerned by what others think about them than what God does. And because when you understand grace, you understand that God knows you're broken. God knows you struggle. God knows you're weak. You can worship him in your weakness, not in your strength, not in your purity, not in your codes, not in the standards that everyone's supposed to abide by. And then lastly, fake Christians punish themselves and real Christians honor God. These are just the standards that Paul brings up in the book of Colossians. Now, here, here's, what, <coughs> excuse me. here's what I want you to think about as we wrap up and go home. And you, when you read Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, remember where Paul was when he wrote them. Remember why he wrote them. He was telling people on the outside how to live in freedom. Well, he was in what? In chains. He was saying, these chains don't inhibit me from walking my life of faith. But you on the outside are more in chains than I am. Because you're not trusting the kingdom. You're not opening yourself up to all this. So my encouragement to each one of us is, there's messages in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians that we need to spend some time in. Take these three books. I'd, I'd pray you could loop them in a year. Just keep reading them. You can read every one of them in about 30 minutes. You could just sit down and read them and read them and just savor that first uh, sentence in both uh, Colossians and Ephesians. Just sit, sit down and write it out. Let, let those thoughts pour over you because a man in prison was showing the people in, the, in freedom how to be free. Well, he, he would give his life for this. It's powerful for today, and I pray as we go through Ephesians after Easter, you'll see some of the value and encouragement is just to live this out, just enjoy being resurrected people free. All right? Have a great spring break, even if you don't break, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks, and we'll jump right back in, continue with Lesson 9. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.